0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third webinar in our 2023 Science Series on Advocacy in Rare Disease, entitled Closing the Funding Gap. I'm Erica Berg, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science, and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. This is our third year exploring the challenges and successes in the rare diseases field, tackling such issues as diagnosis and detection, Research hurdles and opportunities, and mental health challenges. We've also looked at finding solutions and exploring options to improve opportunities for both those researching and living with rare diseases. In this panel discussion, we're going to take a deep dive into the thorny issue of funding. Securing funding for healthcare research is rarely easy but it may be particularly challenging for rare diseases. Each of these, by definition, affects a small portion of the population, making it easy for funders to overlook rare disease research. However, addressing the funding gap is crucial because collectively, rare diseases impact the lives of millions of individuals and their loved ones worldwide. Advocates are helping to close the gap by engaging with the public, governments, private enterprises, and beyond, making the case for adequate funding. Today, with our panel of experts, we'll explore funding challenges and opportunities in rare disease. Finally, a thank you to Foundation Ipsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome a really fantastic panel today. I'll give them each a chance to say hello and introduce themselves. And I'll start off with Dr. Julie Saba. Welcome, Julie.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So I am Julie Saba, I'm a pediatric oncologist and professor of pediatrics at UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. Um, I I would say that my career began uh, in my fellowship years and also at the same time I was doing graduate work uh, trying to find new genes involved in cancer. Um, I honed in on a an obscure pathway called the sphingolipid metabolic pathway, and I cloned some genes in that uh, pathway. Um, Jump forward 30 years, uh, and uh, just about five years ago, uh, I discovered, uh, my colleagues and I discovered a mutation in one of those genes causes a rare disease. And so I have Recently shifted my focus to try to develop therapeutics and a better understanding of the pathomechanism
0: of this disease. All right. Thank you so much, Julie. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Christine Mueller. Thank you so much for being here, Christine. Thank
2: you for having me. I'm a um, medical officer in the Office of Orphan Products Development at the US Food and Drug Administration. Um, I work primarily as a project officer on our grants programs for rare diseases. I'm a clinical geneticist by training, and I've also worked at the National Cancer Institute on uh, research for rare um, cancer syndromes
0: and at the Common Fund at the NIH as well. Thank you so much, Christine. And next, we have Dr. Daria Jolkowski. Welcome, Daria.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me. So... um, I'm uh, working at the National Institute of Health and Medical Research in France, and it's been—I have a PhD in molecular biology, and actually, it's been 13 years that I'm involved more, more specifically in rare diseases. Um, since seven, since 2019, I coordinate a big European program, which is called the European Joint Program on Rare Diseases, that brings together more than 130 institutions from 35 countries from Europe and beyond that are together working to create an ecosystem that supports the rare diseases research. And I'm also coordinating the scientific secretariat of the International Rare Disease Research Consortium. Uh, so get working in rare diseases with a very passionate community and very happy to be here.
0: Wonderful, thank you, Daria. And finally, a warm welcome to Dr. C. Ford Rungi. Many thanks for joining us, Ford.
4: Thank you for having me. Um, <clears throat> I'm a, a McKnight Professor of Applied Economics and Law at the University of Minnesota. And my connection to these issues is, is quite personal. I have a daughter who is diagnosed with Smith-McGinnis Syndrome, which is a rare disease, <clears throat> and also has a lupus diagnosis. But um, uh, I have worked on this issue with my son, who's at the Biomedical Research and Development Authority in Washington. And uh, for over 20 years, uh, I've been associated in obesity and thermogenesis research with uh, Dr. Jim Levine, who's now at the uh, Fondation uh, Ibsen in Paris. So my interest is in the application of economics uh, to the challenge of rare diseases.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Ford. Now let's get started. So I'm going to put my first question to Julie. Julie, this presentation is called "Advocacy in Rare Disease: Closing the Funding Gap." Is there a funding gap?
1: Well, that's an easy—that's an easy question to answer. <laughs> yes, there is a funding gap. Uh, I think it's—it's um, it's understood that um, there are many millions of people affected by rare diseases, but each one represents a small number. Uh, relative to the more common diseases of aging that our society faces. Uh, and it's um, it's a challenge to convince society and convince the funding agencies uh, to invest in uh, the development of therapeutics and, and diagnostics and everything else that is needed in order to um, advance the health of individuals with uh, rare diseases. Um, I think there's There's this kind of, there's a space between uh, the very early basic science uh, recognition of the genetic cause of a disease, which is a very exciting uh, um, prospect and um, gathers a lot of attention uh, and can be funded. Uh, And then on the other end of the spectrum is um, the development of therapeutics by pharma companies. Uh, where things are already well-developed, but there's a space in between um, where individuals and groups have to be working to understand um, the me- the mechanism of the disease, the um, methods of diagnostic discovery, uh, development of biomarkers, um, the finding of patients, and um, and all of these, and the relevance to more common diseases, because monogenic diseases can obviously um, indicate the role of a pathway in more common uh, diseases, which garners more attention. So there are are a lot of different reasons why there is a funding gap, but yes, there is one. (laughs)
0: Thank you. And is everyone in agreement? We have any um, further comment on that? All right. I guess we're all in the right place. So uh, Ford, my next question is for you. Uh, as an economist, um, sort of and I suppose you already mentioned your personal connection to rare disease, but what sort of um, drew you into the study of rare disease as an economist what how did you find your your role there um, and and what role does um, you know being an economist have in the rare disease space?
4: Well, thank you i <clears throat> I teach in advanced uh... Ph.D. level course here at the University of Minnesota in applied economics, and I have quite a few students who come in from the health sciences Ph.D. Uh, to take my course, and so there's quite an interaction uh, with uh, that group, and uh, because I had familiarity with uh, some of the work of the Foundation Ibsen, I uh, enlisted some students uh, in the Ph.D. program to begin to help see if we could apply basic economic reasoning to some of the problems of rare diseases there is a pretty well established tradition in uh, plant breeding research looking at the way in which research in one area spills over into research in others and so i began to uh, discuss with my students whether or not we could apply some of the basic principles of economics analysis which looks at spillover effects economists typically refer to them somewhat obscurely as externalities, uh, to see whether or not we could begin to cluster rare diseases in ways that would uh, facilitate insight from one rare disease to another, or from one rare disease into more common diseases. And the general implication, uh, in the event that we can document these spillover effects, is that we are under-investing in rare diseases because the uh, benefits of uh, insight at the level of treatment or at the level of research design or at the level of the development of networks to share information on rare diseases all implies uh, that the returns to this uh, investigation are larger than appear at first sight. And so this goes directly to the first question you raised about um, funding gaps and underinvestment. So that's my take on this. It's very much a, a perspective from the point of view of economics, uh, and I uh, defer entirely on the matter of science to uh, my panel mates.
0: <laughs>
4: Thank you, Ford.
0: Anyone else have a comment? I've heard of this term spillover effects in your own work at all. Um...
3: Well if I, if I may, I think that um the, the the problem with rare diseases is that indeed we need to find a uh, or kind of all all over all all along the way we need to find the arguments for the rare diseases um to to be funded. So of course one of those arguments is that rare diseases have impact or are kind of helping to um to understand better the 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 more common diseases. But then it's true that um it's a little bit, um, well, I would say difficult than uh, always using, using this kind of arguments uh, to obtain funding, especially, in, detail, in, for example, in basic research where you have a project where you have to justify why you are working on a disease where there are, I don't know, only 10 patients all over the world and so on. So obviously it's, it's not easy and might, maybe... My question or comments, actually, to Ford would be how we can um, actually stimulate also the collaboration between the scientists in in economics and the scientists, uh, for example, uh, that are working more from the uh, let's say from the biology or medical perspective. Because I think that this linkage is still not, let's say, sufficiently established. While the um, the impact of rare diseases or the burden of rare diseases or the economic positive impact, let's say of the research on on, on rare diseases um, is is still lacking some uh, more concrete numbers. And this is obviously connected also to the the data that can be brought in by other types, let's say, of researchers.
0: So, Ford, what do you think? How can we connect um, biologists, biosciences with economists in the rare disease space more effectively? You were saying some of your students are actually... Um, health students, is that right?
4: Well, yes, that's a, a modest uh, start. But, um, <clears throat> of course, this, this uh, webinar itself is an effort to, uh, to raise the profile of, uh, of the relationships. I think that uh, it's important to uh, encourage funding agencies to think about developing interdisciplinary teams that include uh, analysts uh, from economics, also, I think uh, analysts from uh, finance, uh, one of the, uh, <clears throat> the uh, interesting questions that uh, rare diseases pose is if a potential investor uh, is looking at uh, the research programs in this area, how can we develop clusters of uh, activity and portfolios in which the Likelihood of spillover from one uh, disease to another or to common diseases uh, is is greater. So we have roughly seven thousand rare diseases out there, but within that seven thousand, surely there are clusters of diseases that have an affinity uh, for one another. Uh, applications of artificial intelligence and other statistical methods can be used uh, to ferret out uh, what these potential relationships are and to create uh, investment portfolios that might be attractive to venture capitalists. So there's both an economic analysis and statistical component to this, and there's also uh, an effort to reach out to the investment community. And all of these types of activities and people need to be better represented, it seems to me, in uh, the, uh, the enterprise of rare disease research.
1: Uh, can I just uh, comment? I, I mean, I think there are some natural affinities from a scientific and anatomical viewpoint. Uh, in the sphingolipid field, there are many commonalities within the biochemical pathway uh, for the many different new diseases that are being discovered by next generation sequencing in that pathway. Um, and for example, the lysosomal storage diseases, Tay-Sachs, Sandhoff, Fabry, Farber, uh, Gaucher, these are all related diseases and they have a natural affinity for one another because they're all um, affected by enzymes in the lysosome. There are other whole um, uh, groups of diseases that are affecting the central nervous system. And there's so many uh, uh, genes that are um, poorly understood but are known to be linked to uh, developmental um, diseases that if if we look anatomically at the gene expression in the brain, different anatomical locations. Um, we could we could see these natural clusters of uh, scientific activity and um, sharing of information. The I think the, one of the problems is that um, it takes um, it kind of takes a champion or a couple of champions, uh, either in the scientific realm or in the patient realm, uh, uh, to be able to organize all of this and uh, create enough. Uh, enough of a systematic organization within multiple institutions to be able to vie for funding as a cohort. And, and that's uh, that's challenging. Um, but there is a path, but that's where I would see assistant assistance being very helpful.
4: Hmm. If I might return just for a minute to the sort of conceptual perspective on this, in um, in plant breeding research where we've seen spillover effects from research programs to other research programs, um, one of the things that was quickly realized is that um, that research tends to spill over effectively in uh, agro-ecological zones in which various plant varieties uh, uh, live. And so the in a rough kind of way, one question to ask here is within the, um, the large set of rare diseases, where are the affinities that are uh, effectively analogs to agroecological zones um, in which uh, the characteristics, uh, molecular characteristics of the diseases are shared? And uh, again, I, Julie, I, I defer to you uh, on answering questions like that.
0: Wow, I had no idea we were gonna talk about plant breeding today, but that is just fascinating, <laughs> the connections there. Uh, Christine, I was wondering as, uh, as your role as um, in government in funding um, research, sort of what is the role of the government in funding rare disease research? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, the Orphan Drug Funding Program um, and sort of what gap does that fill?
2: Yeah. So I just to sort of go back to um, the previous discussion Mm. too. one of our um, initiatives is to to, to sort of focus on innovative and efficient trial design. So we have on the farther end of the discussion sort of added some extra funds to our funding opportunities for folks that are addressing those challenges because we recognize there are shared molecular etiologies and pathophysiologies in diseases and collaboration is important and extra funding sometimes is necessary for those sort of projects. Um, So in general, the mission of our office, the Office of and Products Development at FFDA that I work in, is the evaluation and development of products. So medical devices, drugs, biologics, specifically for rare diseases, Um, we have several programs that provide incentives for rare disease drug development, but the grants program was um, funded Beginning in 1983, under the Orphan Drug Act, and we again really provide funding specifically for rare diseases. With the over 7,000 that are known, there are only about a few hundred that have treatments at this point. Um, and so, more than 90% of rare diseases still don't have a treatment. And besides our office, there are other our sister agencies: so the National Institutes of Health, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and even the Department of Defense fund rare disease research, they tend to fund research more in the basic and translational, sometimes clinical trial realm. Um, We all also support public-private partnerships uh, that play a role in funding. Um, But again, there's still a large need remaining for rare disease treatments. Our office primarily has funded a clinical trials Mm -hmm. grants program and a natural history program. Um, We have about $19 million a year to do so. We fund about 60 to 80 ongoing grants at a time, um, and we've supported product development for over 80 products um, and 90 indications for our diseases. Um, We're funding mostly to small companies, academia, um, and we do, like I said, in our funding opportunities more recently, um, have looked at things that have sort of promoted those 80 products that have been developed and those have primarily been collaborations with patient advocacy groups, industry and academia. So we've added those sorts of um, uh, aspects of study design into our criteria as scoring criteria. Um, we do also fund um, uh, you know uh, trials that support publications, uh, clinical guideline changes, that sort of thing as well. so, and I think we're unique in that we also um, build on our OOPD staff and our other FDA regulatory staff in providing input onto the trials that we fund. So that's a little different than the other government agencies that are funding trials, uh, clinical trials for rare disease research in general. Hmm.
0: Great. Thank you so much for that overview. And um, FDA, obviously a, a U.S.-based uh, organization, but uh, Daria, I'm wondering if you could... Uh, Talk a little bit about, um, you know, from a global perspective, are there, you know, regional differences in not only sort of the funding gap, but about funding opportunities um, globally?
3: Yeah, so um, clearly there there are some differences, but also, uh, luckily, synergies. And I think that this is something which is really important that we try to build more and more bridges uh, also at, at the international scale. Um So, from the European perspective, and when just just zooming a little bit into Europe, um, we not only have the challenge of the rare diseases being having few patients and being scattered all over all over the world all over the Europe, but also we have twenty seven countries that are part of the European Union and uh, obviously, as you can imagine, at the scale of a small country, um, uh, having a dedicated rare diseases research program is something which is really extremely rare actually. So, the only way of doing things um, is actually working together. And this is something that is being done since more than 20 years. Also, in in Europe, we have the, for example, the multinational uh, research funding program uh, that allows on funding of the multinational research projects that combine the different expertise and teams from different countries. And then, of course, allow on not only sharing the knowledge, but also bringing together all the available expertise. Because uh, we also need to think in terms of uh, perspectives, like uh, also in terms of the researchers' perspectives and so so on. So this is something uh, very important and this is the way, um, let's say, Europe works. But if I can say also in terms of the global scale, um, when thinking also through the perspective of the International Red Disease Research Consortium, we can clearly see that there are differences in different parts of the world. In countries, um, like middle, let's say low and middle income countries, one of the main problems or challenges uh, in relation to the rare diseases is also the fact that Rare diseases not only compete with the more common, uh, with the more common diseases and those more common diseases may be, um, HIV, for example, uh, in Africa or in India or malaria in other, uh, in other regions. So pulling the resources for the rare diseases, even if we consider that globally altogether, they are not as rare as, uh, one would say it's also still very changing in other. In other parts of the in other parts of the world, so there are clearly different models uh, in terms of funding. Uh, in Europe, it's a, yeah, I would say collaborative model that is the the, the the primary way of of working together because of the fact that doing it at smaller scale doesn't make sense. Hmm.
0: Thank you. Um, so, Julie, um, we're going to talk about maybe a little bit of some success stories about you know. How do we actually get funding? Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience um, you know, obtaining funding for gene therapies in rare disease um, and what you've learned that perhaps our audience can benefit from?
1: Um, well, I have had successes, um, and they've come from a variety of different ways. But I think I would start back at the beginning where I was not successful. <laughs> um, uh, i I found that um, what I was told first going to industry, um, that was one of one of the um, avenues that i I took uh, because I was really dealing with the therapeutic approach. Um, although i'm I've been spending my life in basic science, i I just realized that um, with my expertise, I was the one person who might be able to help the families and the children with this particular disease and I just turned my attention strictly to therapeutics, Um, but I was told very quickly, you need to find more patients or you need an expansion indication. And that actually was helpful advice, um, and we conducted a um, prevalence estimate uh, study um, looking for um, the worldwide prevalence of this disease, at least theoretically based on the presence of um, the mutant uh, variants of this uh, gene in healthy populations in, in which we can calculate that. And that that brought us from less than 100 patients uh, known in the world to uh, at least 12,000, and that's probably a very conservative estimate. So that's very helpful. Um, just having that number is helpful in every grant application that I write, um, because uh, numbers mean something. Your reviewer's uh, even though NIH has strict policy not to eliminate or not to uh, base uh, scores on how common a disease is, it is an implicit bias, I'm afraid, in, um, in the evaluation of all grants. So one has to do a very good job of making the case. Um, the expansion indication is another way of um, uh, connecting the observation of the pathophysiology of this disease to more common diseases. In our case, uh, we connected the fibrotic kidney disease to um, actually lung fibrosis, which is a a complication of of COVID and other coronavirus infections. And so it was a timely uh, expansion indication that we we put forth. And we've been able to get funding now uh, for all of these different expansion indications and for our funding for our main projects uh, in large part because of accomplishing those goals uh, of increasing the significance uh, of our disease. So, I mean, that's in short some of the the successes that I have had. Um, I also think that there are so many things that are required in uh, having a clinical trial for a rare disease um, and uh, biomarker development is one that we've been particularly interested in, and that's another area where um, that can be very useful for many um, many diseases, finding a biological endpoint or something that can can be measured in the blood in a blood sample. Um, and so I've actually been very successful in getting funding for the biomarker projects that we have.
0: Great, thank you. Um, and Daria. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about some innovative funding models or mechanisms that have been successful in supporting rare disease research beyond, you know, we think about grants and, and you know, uh, writing grants and getting traditional grant funding, but are there more innovative models for securing funding in the rare disease space um, that you can talk about? Well, I th-
3: I think that in, in, in rare disease space, probably like and i'm not really sure that it's only specific to the redis space but um yeah, yeah things uh, or models like you know crowdfunding or um and and still i would i would say that there is quite a lot of innovation still i would say in approaching that more traditional government related grants and and this is for example what what we are looking uh, what we are trying to do is that um you really need to move from this kind of a Let's say more traditional funding, uh very much based on um of course scientific excellence, and it doesn't mean that this is something that does not count, but to start expanding, let's say, also the way the funders view uh the, the, the funding model into uh especially in the space of of rare diseases. So for example, what uh what we do and what uh, we've managed to successfully secure is that, for example, now in our research uh, funded research projects, we also provide the funding for the patient organizations. Mm. so this is something to make sure that they can participate in research projects and that they can be uh, one of the drivers also of the research project so that that becomes one of the criteria for example of the selection um, of of the project, but again. At the beginning it was only the criterion of the selection but there was no funding now we've met, moved from criterion for selection to also securing the funding because the patient organizations were telling us that's great but you want us to participate everywhere but actually we do not have any budget to to be able to to participate so so this is something that um that is one of the of the things that we have implemented to to make sure that those projects are really more patient need led driven and um this over, over also, so together with the funders and patient organisations, we publish, for example, the guidelines for the researchers or how to involve the patients um, in in the research projects. Other things that are being done is, for example, how to make sure that actually all this public funding that we are in- investing in the in the rare diseases research, in in a way, is not being lost. And I'm not saying that the researchers are not go- doing a good job, but. Honestly I'm not really sure that your approach uh Julie is something which is very common especially when you come from this kind of basic um uh research uh area to have this you know way of thinking okay I'm doing something that at the end may produce a specific result that is going to have an impact or can uh, lead to a therapy and, and and so on so this is another thing and obviously we do not want to we do not want also to put all the burden burden on the researchers. They they can do their research and uh and they should do their research and not necessarily be, you know, the entrepreneur and regulatory uh, uh specialist and, and everything. So the the other thing that we are implementing is so-called the mentoring, for example, mentoring of the research project. So it is at the level of the application when we allow to the researchers to have this kind of mentoring where they can have the um, access to the specific expertise, for example, from the industry, from the regulatory, from the ethics, to make sure that they can improve their project um, so when the applications goes goes through, they have a higher chance not only to be funded, but also that their results of the project are going to be then translatable into more, uh, let's say, more uh, more meaningful results. And for that, we are also supporting them to, for example, fi- uh, find afterwards the follow-on funding and and so on. So they are, these are the things that we are trying to implement to kind of have this kind of more comprehensive ecosystem uh, around the also around the the funding of of rare diseases.
1: Yeah. Uh, oh, I just was going to say, um, I, I really appreciate what you said, Daria, and I, I failed to mention some of the institutions that uh, and the, the initiatives that I think are very helpful. Um, I've been fortunate in having funding from the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, okay. and because they are so focused on cures using gene therapy, gene editing, and um, um, cell therapy. Uh, they don't really care whether it's a rare disease or not. So um, having a focus on a cure, de- developing a cure has been very helpful, and they've been very supportive. There's a, a project, uh, there's a program at NIH, uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute called the Catalyze Program, which is also focused on taking basic science observations and, and discoveries and, and pushing them towards therapeutics. And so I think that that transitional phase is really important. And I'm also a participant of a program called Nucleate, which is actually designed to, to um, kind of teach basic scientists like me about startups. And uh, it, it give you uh, a, an important uh, perspective on exactly what Daria was talking about, which is, uh, you know, it's fine to have a basic science discovery, but what is actually required at the re- regulatory level, what is required to, um, to have a successful transition into a viable therapeutic. So I, I agree, that's a really important uh, area.
2: Yeah, and I just wanted to add um, one of the aspects of sort of a, a need in the rare disease space is really unknown natural history data in a lot of rare diseases um, towards being able to develop treatments for them. So we actually fund natural history studies for rare diseases specifically, which not a lot of folks do. Um, and we have also changed, we we, do, we also fund patient advocacy organizations, so not just industry um, or academia, because we know that some of those groups really have a lot of um, knowledge about their diseases and are, are relatively active. Um, we support collaborations through our scoring criteria, as well as one of our scoring criteria is different than NIH's is specifically patient input Mm. so that uh, we feel that's really an innovative aspect of our RFAs, our funding opportunities. And we also include patient representatives on our reviews and provide them a chance to provide input prior to any funding of grants that that we um, plan to fund as well because we feel like that is really helpful in moving development towards what they think is a benefit to them in terms of treatment or potentially a risk as well. So. I think those are really important in this space because as the U.S. Orphan and Drug Act defined rare diseases as less than 200,000. As, and as Julie said, those are really small patient groups to even complete trials on. So we have seen in our programs in the past where some studies just get stuck because they can't enroll patients because there hasn't been patient input on trial design or There's really
0: not a well-known natural history because patients haven't been involved in natural history studies. And just based on something you said, so what uh, strategies can advocates or rare disease advocacy organizations um, use to sort of raise public awareness, engage communities, or communicate with your office um, in supporting uh, rare disease funding?
2: I think it's really, like I said, uh, you know, providing input when they're asked for trial designs, encouraging enrollment in trials that they believe, you know, may be beneficial to their groups, um, advertising. Um, We actually have a rare disease day that we support every year where they tend to primarily be focused a a lot on patient advocacy and us communicating with patient organizations on how the FDA works and how they can help us. Um, So that's one of our... One of the ways I think that's really helpful for patients just to understand the FDA and get involved with us.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful book that um, was recently published called We the Scientists mm. that um, is a really wonderful read about the um, uh, NPC1 uh, um, the families and their organization and how they interacted with the FDA and um, tried to get new therapeutics. It's, it's a small book, but it's uh, really inspiring.
4: Well, one of the uh, <clears throat> the things that we're sort of talking over here is that not all networks of patients and researchers uh, and agencies are created equal. Um, and uh, in the specific instance that I'm most familiar with, my daughter's disability, uh, Smith-Magenis syndrome, which is a microdeletion deletion, uh, the 17th chromosome. Um, Ann Smith, for whom the syndrome is named at NIH, has built what I think may be a kind of model network in that respect. And I think other people who are working on networks can benefit by seeing which networks for which rare diseases have been most successful. Um, and so we can think about networks as a unit of analysis in uh advancing uh, understanding and funding for rare diseases.
3: If if I may, I fully agree uh, with what you say, Ford, but um, uh, it was also mentioned by Christine is that we have not only about 90-95% of rare diseases do not have the effective treatment, but actually they do not even have any kind of research activity. Mm-hmm. So uh, they are really underserved, and so one of the things and so building networks is something which is crucial as a starting point. Uh, on our side, for example, we are providing a small it's it's not a big funding uh it's it's like only thirty thousand euros uh, for what we call the networking. So it's not really about research but about building networks or expanding networks or sharing the knowledge. And we have uh, seen, we have implemented this several years uh, ago and we have uh, noticed that it's really very successful and that this is something that we can use to help building new networks around rare diseases where actually nothing um, is happening and where maybe the patient organization or a group of patients, not even yet organized in a specific patient organization, wants to take, um, start to be connected to the researchers. And what you were also talking about, the fact that uh, there are some other approaches like Trying to find the commonalities, and we know also that this is something that, uh, yeah, it's part of the, um, if I can say, a business model or a funding model for the rare diseases. That having, you know, uh, those commonalities, for example, shared molecular etiology, is something that can be really helpful when thinking about uh, addressing the potential uh, investors. Um, so, yeah, bringing, helping in patient with patients' communities, helping them come together helping them also from the scientific perspective for example of connecting um this is something which is really uh, very important and uh, I hope that by 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 bringing those networks or uh, this is something that we can help with uh, by uh, with addressing those 95% of still underserved um, rare diseases maybe one thing is that one uh, a very interesting initiative is also uh, the uh, activity of the Chan Zuckerberg uh, initiative that you may know about, and they have taken this perspective from the other way around. So they decided to finance patient organizations that want to build research projects. So it's really patient organizations that are the drivers uh, for the research projects. And uh, yeah, I find that this this model is also very very interesting uh, uh, in in terms of yeah approaching uh, the, let's say the readiness research from the from the heart of, uh, of, of of the need of the of the patients,
0: yeah, wow, that is striking that there's you know such a, a lack of even any research activity for so many of these uh, diseases. Um, I was wondering uh, Julie, what we touched on this a little bit, but um, crowdfunding in particular, but sort of what role can crowdfunding and social media platforms play in trying to close the funding gap for some of these um, underserved rare diseases
1: um, so I haven't personally um, explored crowdfunding uh, and and I my particular disease of interest did not have an advocacy group I actually worked with one, Uh, parent and one patient and created one and we have a website and we're just now uh, trying to amplify um, our signal on Twitter and whatever other (laughs) social media uh, um, tools will be available for us. Um, uh, So I'm in just an early stage of, of dealing with that. I have too many things in terms of basic science and translation to try to do it myself, but my students are trying to help. Um, I will mention that um, I think that one of the great models is the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Um, They did not, uh, in terms of their uh, awareness raising, they've been a very well-organized group, um, but they made the decision at some point to um, partner with the companies that they funded and actually receive some of the financial benefit of a drug that uh, was Uh, therapeutically successful in one version of cystic fibrosis for one mutation. And um, they used the funds that came back from that success to expand their organization as a whole. And that enabled them to, uh, you know, hire people who could do all of the outreach mm. and awareness raising at a much higher level. So their, their whole organization and its success at fundraising and awareness raising has been expanded exponentially. So I think that's a really good example of a very practical way that, um, that organizations, advocacy organizations can leverage their power to, um, to ad- advance the awareness of their disease.
0: Yeah. Great example. Um, Anyone else have experience or um, observed any successes with crowdfunding or social media use with, with raising funding that, that they'd like to share?
2: I've seen not necessarily raising funding, but sort of use of social media platforms for enrolling or finding patients early on for our natural history studies or doing brief surveys. Um, You know, I'm sure there's a little bit of sometimes awareness about it, private health information in those spaces but i think as a source for um finding patients and letting them know about trials mm-hmm. that they would potentially be used for and can be yeah if i may um
3: there's the social media are clearly helpful in building networks mm-hmm. one thing that um i was thinking of and uh and sometimes it's helpful when thinking about, for example, crowdfunding is that in this kind of funding pathway of, of a research project coming from the basic to more translational aspects and, and then finally going to the clinical trial. Sometimes you need to just kind of have a, like a small push with a relatively small envelope of money that helps you risk some of the results that, that, that you obtain. And this is actually, at least in, uh, in Europe, I would say it's one of the, we were talking about the funding gaps. For me, this is where the biggest funding gaps actually um, exist because we can uh, uh, find uh, funding for, let's say, basic and even translational research uh, when you go to the industry and engage with a collaboration with the industry, obviously you are much further, but the risking of, of some of the of the results and the, of your research project is often uh, kind of neglected and very difficult to, to find uh, sponsors to, to finance this kind of, uh, this part of the research. So here I think crowdfunding can be helpful because we are talking sometimes about a yeah, small amount of money, I don't know, 100,000 euros or dollars, that can be very helpful to, to move to the next step. Um, but which is not kind of sufficiently present in this kind in the funding chain.
0: Great, thank you. Um, I, I
1: also mm-hmm. uh, could I just mention yes. another thing that I um, uh, there was another initiative that I was a part of. Uh, I was a very fortunate to, to be per, a participant in one of the ultragenics boot camps. So ultragenics is an ultra rare disease company that was founded by M.L. Kakis, one of the leaders in rare disease therapeutics. Um, and he, out of the goodness of his heart, um, established or individuals in his uh, organization established a boot camp for um, parent-led um Organizations, advocacy groups. And every, I think it's twice a year, they hold a boot camp and 35 to 40 uh, organizations show up, usually just one or two people from each organization, and learn how to pitch, learn how to um, advocate for themselves, learn to express exactly what it is that they need and then send it out into the universe or to pitch in front of someone and write directly in front of them in a conference room. Um, And I think that was a very nice educational experience um, that I was privileged to participate in.
0: Wow, fantastic. It sounds like you found a lot of um, opportunities to uh, network and and partner with these um, organizations like the one you mentioned a few before, how could uh, someone working in your space or a researcher sort of find um, opportunities to learn and grow and partner and network? Are you just having conversations with people at meetings and learning about these opportunities or how how could um, how can people learn about the opportunities that exist for for um, growing in this space?
1: Uh, I wish it were well-organized and there was a cheat sheet that you could just go to and figure out, oh, you're going to learn rare disease. And these are all the places for funding. And these are all the places for advocacy. And these are all the places for something else. It isn't like that. And the last uh, five years of my uh, development as a rare disease um, researcher um, have been kind of hit and miss. But the more you network, it's it's the same as in science. You know, the more meetings you attend, the more observations you make, the more people that you meet. Who and and by and large, everyone that I've met has been so gracious in terms of sharing contacts, uh, sharing um, opportunities, uh, grant. Funding just participating in this uh, event today. I've, I'm I've been making notes of uh, uh, my follow up calls to each of you <laughs> to try to learn uh, more about um, the FDA and um, their listening sessions for uh, advocacy groups and the kind of things that um, would be helpful for us in the future. I'm a, I'm a, I submitted an NIH grant for a natural history study in this disease, which would be an international study. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it doesn't get funded, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to look up the <laughs> FDA uh, application. So uh, I think it's just uh, I wish it were a little bit more organized. Um, but in this in this case, it, for my disease, it was not it was a difficult road.
0: Anyone else have a cheat sheet that we could um, that we could post? No. No. What,
3: what I can say is that what we are trying to do with the European program on rare diseases is to really be like a kind of a a, a single entry point, and uh, to the rare diseases community uh, or, or ecosystem at least. Uh, mostly for the European, but also going going beyond Europe. So what we try to do is that because of the fact that already today we are kind of encompassing 85% of, let's say, rare diseases um, uh, research community in in Europe, we have this expertise at hand and uh, just by a single help desk not only by the information that we are providing on our website of course to the funding opportunities to the services that we are providing uh, the expertise we we can use a single help desk so anybody can come in and with a specific let's say request and we in a way shorten the pathway to get to what they 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 would be, they are looking for either by being able to respond immediately by ourselves or by mobilizing the the network uh, of experts that, uh, Uh, that we have the possibility to connect with. But I think that uh, it's true, for example, and I'm not knowledgeable about everything also that is happening over the world or in the United States, but the reality is that, for example, when thinking about establishing a a single portal that would uh, put all the funding opportunities for rare diseases in one place, it's very difficult because often um, rare diseases are not necessarily excluded as a topic, which means that more um, that calls for projects or funding opportunities that are addressed to larger, let's say, larger topics also can encompass rare diseases. So this is really um, very complicated. And another thing that we are trying to work on is how to find, and this is a, a, a very common um uh request that we are getting not only from the researchers but also from patient organizations is that how do i find actually my future collaborators or the people who whom with whom i would like to build the project and the realities and this is maybe and i don't think it, again it's specific to europe is that First of all, you cannot impose on people, uh, to make themselves, uh, somehow visible. For example, if you have this kind of B2B or, or matchmaking tools that are uh, implemented, um, uh, and are accompanying the f- open, open funding opportunities, because usually the people who have already built their networks, they collaborate with their colleagues and are not necessarily uh, open to look for some other collaborators. So those who are kind of from the outside they cannot see them so we are thinking about how actually we can build this kind of um, uh, and uh, let's say a, a, a tool that where the researchers working on different rare diseases or specific topics would be visible and, and this is something that can be now done with the text mining with the uh, with the open science with the uh, with the artificial intelligence with all those open data information so uh, at the end we hope that this is something that uh may be uh implementable or be uh, in a in a, in a near future
4: i just might add that in in, in economics network externalities are actually a thing um, and uh, we uh, have criteria that uh, can help us to understand how to facilitate networks that work better than others so that uh, it's possible to to improve the efficiency with which communication in these networks occurs and uh, artificial intelligence is increasing. I think the power uh, of that capacity, uh, as we speak. So, you know, I think that uh, that the application of some of those methods to the subset of networks that relate to rare diseases could be very uh, beneficial.
0: Great, thank you. We'll I'll be- say,
1: I, I've had I've had conversations with um, leaders in the National Office of Rare Disease. And um, they have their finger on the pulse of what's going on mm-hmm. throughout the NIH. And that has those conversations have also been helpful in uh, directing me to um, funding opportunities and um, connecting me with people who have gone down the path before me. So uh, that, that I think is also a very useful starting point.
0: And is there a best point of entry to the uh, FDA orphan drug opportunities, Christine?
2: Yeah, contacting myself is probably <laughs> useful, <laughs> um, and and I, um, you know, and several other project officers and our program director Kathy Needleman, receive inquiries all the time about our program and whether folks may be. Um, you know, a good fit for the funding opportunities that we have, but we also know folks at our sister agencies and point folks to the NIH Office of Rare Disease Research and the, the individual institutes based on the diseases maybe that somebody's asking us about on a regular basis. So, um, and the, the DOD funding opportunities as well. Um, And, you know, we're able to support each other in funding oftentimes as well. We have sometimes grants that have funding from different agencies for similar trials or for a natural history study with us and then a clinical trial later on with another agency. Um, So I think that's a good way. And Julie mentioned um, not just the funding opportunities for us, but patient listening sessions that are um, held by our patient affairs staff or folks as they sort of move along into um, clinical trials and may sort of... Either be having issues, or you know, move, want to move a product forward, and want the FDA to hear about, um, you know, what they think is a benefit or, or a risk, a good benefit-risk ratio in terms of a, a possible treatment. And those are opportunities that folks can always sort of, you know, get in touch with me about if they're interested in as well.
0: I have a feeling you're about to get a lot think- of email. Sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I just want to also. Uh- Thank the FDA for all of the financial incentives, such as the priority review voucher and things that have made a huge difference in terms of incentivizing um, the development of drugs for rare diseases, because that also is not quite fitting into this topic, but is uh, very, very important, and hopefully it will be renewed.
0: Hopefully. Well, um, Unfortunately, we'll have to stop there as we've run out of time. Uh, I can't thank you, our panelists enough uh, for being with us today. Uh, it's been a delight talking with you all. I learned so much, and I hope our audience did as well. Uh, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all of the previous events in the series at science.org/webinars. This webinar is the third in a series of six running this year, so look out for more coming soon. Thank you once again to our panel and to Foundation Ipsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone.